It's Wednesday the 8th of July and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. This is Pat Leahy sitting in again this week for Hugh Linehan who's completing his annual holiday walking backwards along the Camino. On today's podcast, Micheál Martin took leaders' questions for the first time yesterday but most of the focus was on his embattled Minister for Agriculture. So what happened down in the Dáil? Also yesterday, the European Commission published its summer economic forecast and the picture it paints is a dire one, a recession of 8% across the EU this year. But what does that mean in real terms? And with our new government expected to announce a major stimulus package in the coming weeks, what are its best options? And tomorrow we'll find out if Pascal Donoghue has been successful in his campaign to become president of the Eurogroup, the powerful body of European finance ministers. What advantages are in holding the role? And what are Pascal's chances? And who are his rivals? With me to talk about all of this is political reporter Jennifer Bray, our managing editor and economics columnist Cliff Taylor, and on the line from Brussels, it's Naomi O'Leary. Jennifer, first to you, if I can. Micheál Martin was sitting in the Taoiseach's chair, I thought, a good 10 minutes in advance of his first leader's questions yesterday. Such was his eagerness and impatience to take his first leader's questions as Taoiseach. But a lot of the attention was focused on his agriculture minister, who made a personal statement later on. What did you think of it all? Yeah, you're right. And, and Michal was in there around 10 minutes early. And in fact, I sort of got the impression that he may be hanging around a little bit earlier than that. Such was his eagerness to get into the into the doll chamber. He was absolutely dying to get into that Taoiseach spot. Um, and, you know, yesterday was uh, the first day back to kind of some form of normality, I suppose, uh, in doll business. So instead of statements and, and questions on COVID in advance and in anticipation of a government being elected, we had the bread and butter issues of leaders' questions, topical issues, uh, legislation, obviously, which is very important. And uh, But as our colleague uh, Miriam Lord points out in her column today, they must have set some kind of record because it's their first day as a government, proper full day of dull business, and we have our first apology or explanation from a minister. And it's quite unprecedented. Uh, so I think, you know, a lot of people were watching Micheál Martin and his first leader's questions with Mary Lou Macdonald. So Mary Lou Macdonald has shifted across the doll chamber. She's now sitting where Micheál Martin used to sit. She's the leader of the of the opposition uh, and she's facing uh, the new forces of Fianna Fáil, uh, Fine Gael and the Green Party. So I was watching her with interest to see, I suppose, what would the dynamic be like? And I was really interested to see if Mary Lou Macdonald would kind of get stuck in, basically, you know, how hard would she go? And actually, in the end, it was a bit of a damp squib, uh, if you were hoping for fireworks, that is. And they, they t- kind of talked about uh, the extension to maternity benefit. Mary Lou Macdonald was saying maternity, the current benefit is not fit for purpose. Um, and asking Micheál Martin to do the right thing. Um, now, he actually basically turned around and said, yeah, I, I agree with you. And in response, Mary Lou Macdonald said that we are of one mind. And I did not expect to hear that in the first leader's questions um, so it kind of passed without incident, to be honest. It was all very calm. It was all very it's all very quiet. I thought it was actually later in the day when Micheál Martin was talking about issues in relation to the Taoiseach's department, whether that be the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the plans for a shared island uh, unit in his in the Department of Taoiseach, that he kind of came into his own. You can tell that this is a role that he fits into like a glove. Um, but like we mentioned earlier on, the big event of the day, the thing that everybody really was waiting for, to be honest, was Barry Cowan's apology or should I say, his personal uh, explanation. We might come to that in a sec, but um, just with regard to the earlier doll exchanges, I, like you, was quite struck by almost the lack of fairness. I, I 
had expected Mary Lou to come out swinging at Micheál Martin, but instead she didn't. She went for that, you know, I mean, not that it's an unimportant issue, but it's it's in, of, of extending maternity benefit. But it's it's not an issue that there's a great deal of political contention uh, about. And uh, as you say, Micheál Martin ended up largely agreeing with uh, with Mary Lou, telling her, of course, as governments always do, that it's not quite as simple as you make it out uh, to be, but um, but certainly not expressing any profound disagreements. Uh, but it was later then, as you say, on the, uh, on the question of a border poll and the whole attitude to Northern Ireland that much clearer dividing lines were evident between uh, Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil. And I wonder if we're going to see that, you know, becoming for the first time in a long time, I think, between government and opposition in uh, uh, in the Dáil become a point of political contention. Um, if, if, if it does, because, it, you know, the approach to Northern Ireland has been marked by a very high degree of uh, of bipartisanship between government and opposition, certainly since before the Good Friday Agreement. But I wonder now with Sinn Féin leading the opposition, is that one of the changes that we'll see? Uh, I think they will push for, when Sinn Féin talk about their priorities for the next couple of years, they, they talk about housing, they talk about childcare, uh, they talk about health and a couple of other things. And then they talk about a united Ireland. I think they will push for it, but it won't be the first thing on their agenda. But, you know, it was interesting to see kind of Micheál Martin saying that he wanted to take a pragmatic approach. He wants to take a practical approach. He kind of talked more about the relationships between the North, between North and South, as opposed to maybe holding a poll, uh, which could be divisive. Uh, and I think he kind of set out a stall for how he t- intends to approach this issue. But of course, there's always a complicating issue. And that's the fact that Jim O'Callaghan, who, as we know, uh, is, is, is one to watch and who has turned down a, a role, a, ju- a junior ministry in the Department of Justice and has talked about wanting to be the voice for the identity of Fianna Fáil outside of government. He wrote in a newspaper over the weekend, I think, where he talked about younger voters and how the party needs to address this idea of a united Ireland, which surprised me, uh, to be honest, because I would have thought that actually the, the issues that mattered most to younger voters right now would be uh, jobs, getting a job, keeping a job, and also... Uh, finding a house or even finding somewhere to rent. So, you know, I think this is something that we will hear much more of in this government than we did the last. Uh, Yesterday was just the first taste of that, really. But I think even internally, like I say, within Fianna Fáil, there will be a push to make this, perhaps to go a little bit further. And perhaps that may come from from Jim O'Callaghan. So it won't just be Sinn Féin versus Fianna Fáil. It could be Fianna Fáil versus Fianna Fáil on this. And what did you make of Barry Cowan's apology last night? Well, I watched the the apology or the personal explanation with somebody who uh, isn't in the political bubble and their response was, hold on a minute, he's just talking about all the great things he's done this week. What, where's the explanation? And to a certain extent, I agree. I think he, he kind of told us a lot of what we already knew. Uh, we knew about the issue 2016. We knew about uh, him driving on a provisional license or a learner's permit then. Uh, And there was nothing really new. There was no big bombshell. You know, I kind of thought beforehand, if anything new came out, if there was any hint or suggestion that there was more to this, you would be very, very worried for his position, which would be a really awful start for a new government to have 
a minister who's only been in there a couple of days go overboard. But he kind of just outlined, here's what happened. I'm very, very sorry. But hold on a minute. Here's all the amazing things I'm doing in the department. Here's all the people I've talked to. You know, I've had the chats with Big Phil. Um, and that that was it. And it kind of, much like the first day of the doll, sort of was a bit, bit of an anticlimax, to be honest. I'm quite struck by the fact that over over recent days, it's not just that his partners in government, his new partners in government, Fine Gael and the Greens have no appetite really to make uh, an issue out of this. But even among the opposition as a whole, there isn't, it seems to me, any great appetite for this. I wonder if that's because they don't think that the offence is all that serious or simply that after the formation of government, they've no real appetite to go into the trenches, the political trenches uh, before the summer recess. Yeah, I don't think there's an appetite for destruction quite yet. I mean, give it another week, just or give it another, you know, few days at least. It's it's a bit early for people to be chomping at the bit. I think um, the other thing that struck me about the fact that the opposition parties were quite quiet was there was a, Alan Kelly did a doorstep yesterday morning where he revealed his new front bench outside uh, outside Leinster House and I popped along and I just kind of shouted at him from the background, do you have any speeding fines yourself? And he kind of laughed and was like, oh my God, I didn't expect that question. And he was he was taken in, in, in good spirits, but he sort of said, oh, to the best of my knowledge, maybe a few years ago, no, nothing now. But I think there's probably a lot of TDs, not, not Alan Kelly, I'm not saying Alan Kelly, but other TDs in, in Leinster House who maybe lived in rural constituencies and have put the pedal to the floor many times uh, in a bid to get there to, for a vote or whatever. And who are probably thinking, oh God, there but for the grace of God, you know, Probably best that I don't go there. I would be surprised if TDs do not have uh, higher than average speeding fines or penalty points simply by virtue of the fact that they do an awful lot of mileage. So I I suspect you may be right that um, that's in the back of at least some of their minds. I probably shouldn't say this now, but it just struck me. You know, all this talk about kind of provisional licence and people gaming the system and in fairness, it is incredible that Barry Cowan got to that age with on a provisional license. But I will hold my hands up and say I too have been on a provisional license for twelve years, <laughs> and it's not. It's often not as straightforward as laziness or um, trying to game the system. Like for me, it was that I failed my test a few times. I lost my confidence. Then I had a bump with another car. Then I got scared. Now I'm getting back on it. Then COVID happened. So I'm, you know. Personally speaking, I'm not all that shocked. It's obviously not great. Maybe I'm just maybe I'm just being defensive, Pat. I'm probably just being defensive. But I just said I put that out there. But please go on and give us some details. And tell us, have you ever gone to the All-Ireland final, had a couple of pints beforehand and then driven home and been stopped by the guards by any chance? I'm actually ashamed to say that I've never gone to an All-Ireland final. OK, well, that's all we want to hear from you uh, this morning. So, Cliff, I'm going to have to talk to you. You've been to many All-Ireland cricket finals. The uh, EU forecast, the Commission's forecast yesterday, not unexpected, uh, I suppose, but still pretty stark all the same. And you were writing in your column on Saturday that this recession that we are now in, I I suppose, is unlike any recession that we've had before. And one of the reasons for that is the kind of two-tier nature of it. And there was an echo of that in, I thought, in the EU forecasts yesterday where they were estimating some countries will, particularly the Mediterranean countries, are more reliant on tourism, I suppose, will be much much more badly hit than uh, some other countries. And 
you were writing that younger, rural, less well-educated people are much more vulnerable to suffering the ill effects of this uh, this recession, domestically speaking. The government is to launch its stimulus plan probably but not certainly next week, if not next week, then uh, then the week after. What are the sort of things that you would expect to see to address those sort of structural imbalances and how the recession hits? Sure, yeah, well, it's a, it's a tricky backdrop for them. There's no doubt about that. As you say, the European Commission forecasts were probably just catching up with reality and catching up with other forecasters a bit. Um, talking about Irish GDP down by 8.5%, which would be kind of the the rough level that uh, official forecasters here would be talking about, the central bank, the SRI and so on. But the first thing to say is there's a huge uh, huge uncertainty around those forecasts. Really, nobody nobody's a clue beyond the next few months what's likely to happen. What we know so far is there's been a huge economic collapse. There's been a bit of a bounce back. Um, but as Philip Lane, um, the ECB chief economist, said, you know, it looks like we might be looking at kind of a, a two steps forward, one step back kind of scenario over the next few months, particularly if the virus breaks out again. And we've seen that happening in, in cities around Europe and kind of shutdowns. That's going to have an impact on consumer confidence. It's going to have an impact on investor confidence. In terms of the stimulus package, uh, I guess the danger for the government is they're, they're really building this one up. And they're only a few weeks in office, so there's possibly only you know only so much they can do. But I think there's a few things to look out for. One is what they're going to do with the wage subsidy, and I think there's been a host of hints that the wage subsidy regime is going to be extended in some way uh, for, for the rest of the year. Now, whether that's done on a general basis or on a sectoral basis, how exactly it's organised, I think is being worked out at the moment. But. F- the kind of talk that's coming out of government is we're going to try and give certainty, we're going to try and give confidence. Uh, and certainly extending the wage subsidy would, would be one way to do that to companies and one way to do that to their, uh, you know, to their employees who are reliant on those subsidies. Interesting to see in the light of that what they do with the pandemic unemployment payment as well. I, I wouldn't expect it to continue for as long. Uh, it may continue for a period. It may be phased down rather than, rather than shut down overnight. It's already been adjusted Beginning, I think, this week, where people who were earning less than uh, less than two hundred euros before they became unemployed will no longer receive three hundred and fifty euros a week. If I'm correct, I don't think anyone's objecting to that because it was introduced in such a rush that I think that kind of uh, that kind of change was 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 likely. I, I think there's a few other things to look out for in the stimulus package as well. I think there's going to be something to help companies who can't afford to take back employees on a full-time basis, uh, but can possibly afford to give them two or three days a week. So I think there's going to be a short-time, some kind of short-time working scheme, whether it's built into the wage subsidy or, or a separate scheme. There are, There is a short-time working scheme there already, but it's it's more designed for companies who are laying people off uh, than, than taking them back on. So it would have to be tweaked in some way. Then in terms of younger people, that, that has to be a focus as well. I think, interestingly, we're going to see that in the, in the Chancellor's um, statement, in uh, summer statement in, uh, in, in London today, a big focus on, on younger people, young unemployed. I think we're going to see that here too, whether that's by way of internships, placement schemes, training programmes, incentives for companies to take on young people temporarily or permanently. I think that's going to be a, a big focus. 
And there's a, a committee being set up, uh, the Labour, Labour Market Advisory Council, which is looking at international experience here, has already submitted a report to government saying that this is the kind of thing you really have to look at. And you have to look at it quickly because if, the, if these host of young people move into unemployment, aren't helped, then the danger is that they slip into long-term unemployment and, and you know, you're into a, you're into a bigger problem. All this sounds an awful lot, Cliff, like measures that will be continuing for the medium term. I mean, those employment supports, I think, are with an eye to operating into next year rather than an immediate sticking plaster for this year, which, of course, implies very considerable costs for the government as we go into next year. Do you think that the horizon for these special measures, which, as you rightly point out, were introduced in a fierce hurry in March and April, do you think the horizon is extending for those now? Absolutely. Uh, I think there's no question. Um, As you say, the pandemic unemployment paper has been scaled back and, and, and I think its future it remains to be seen how long it's going to remain in place or whether it might, there might be a sectoral element to it. For example, if there are sectors that really aren't going to reopen properly, it might make some sense to uh, to have, have the PUP available for people who are working in those sectors. But in general, yes, the, the temporary wage subsidy scheme, I, I think you could see it running into next year in some form. And I think a lot of these other supports that are being put in place are, as you say, medium-term supports because... We're heading into a situation we don't know what unemployment the unemployment rate is going to be you know a few months after all the sectors reopen and encouragingly there has been a, a big number of people moving off the pup uh you know over the last few weeks but it's it's still over four hundred thousand, uh, and it's you know inconceivable that the end of the summer coming into the autumn we aren't going to have a really serious kind of unemployment problem so i think that's trying to give some certainty uh trying to encourage people to take people off the unemployment queue, providing options for people who uh, who are being laid off. They'd all be central to the plan. And a really tricky thing for the government is going to be to decide what to do with sectors like tourism and the aviation sector. Because they don't know, we don't know, even the health experts don't know. Look out to next year, are people going to be travelling? Are the American and British tourists going to be coming back to the wild Atlantic way next year? Or are we looking at something more longer term uh, in terms of the structure of those sectors. And that's really important in terms of how you direct supports because if you think a sector is going to be a lot smaller in future, there isn't much point in supporting it at its current size, uh, you know, heading into next year. Equally, if you feel that this is a kind of a temporary shock and that, you know, things things might return to some kind of normal uh, next year, or even towards the end of next year, that might make some sense to do that. So I think for the moment, the government will will support pretty much across the board including sectors like tourism. But come come the budget and, and looking at the economic plan, there are hints that things are going to be looked at seriously and decisions are going to have to be made about what to support, how to support it, how best to support people. And as you say, that is also a big factor in terms of the cost of all this. Jennifer, if we're looking at, you know, an autumn that has hundreds of thousands of young people unemployed and the government sooner or later is cutting their pandemic support from 350 euros a week back towards, even if it's not in one go, but back towards the 200 euros a week conventional unemployment benefit. That's a politically pretty explosive cocktail for the government to be facing, isn't it? 
It is really. I think um, we knew when this government was formed that the challenges that they were going to face would be singularly awful. You know that that they're not. There's no honeymoon here, as we've seen already. The the decisions that they will have to make will be difficult, and I don't think it's it's feasible to suggest that all of the you know all of these measures will have to be brought in. All the things that Cliff just outlined, and you can still keep things like taxes, uh, etc., at, at the same level. Somewhere along the way, something will have to give. So I think this will be just one of the first kind of, I say, politically very toxic, very difficult decisions that they have to make. Um, and the, the, I'd say the big concern now at the moment in tandem with that is we, we vaguely know, we sort of know where we're going towards the end of the year. But if there is a second wave of COVID-19, that leaves us in an even more precarious situation and, and, and damages the state coffers even more. And even this uh, July job stimulus programme, which, which I agree has been quite hyped up uh, it's it's going to cost you know billions. It's going to cost at least a billion, and the the various different measures that are included in it are really big ticket items. Like if you extend the temporary wage subsidy scheme until twenty twenty one, there's a huge cost that comes with that. If you keep the VAT rate low, if you're bringing in a rates write off, for example, if you're if you're going to bring in grant aid for for restaurants or for hospitality, the price tag with that is absolutely gigantic, and you know. It, it isn't feasible, like you said, to suggest that those payments, maybe the pandemic unemployment payment, that they won't be cut. They will. And uh, it's it's a situation you can almost visualise in the doll, isn't it? Sinn Féin basically making their bread and butter issue out of this. And I think it was Richard Boyd Barrett in the doll. I could be wrong on that yesterday, who said that the test of the next government won't be what they say they'll do for workers. It's obviously what they do. And they talked a bit about the Debenhams workers and, and Michal Martin said he thought they were treated shoddily. And, and the kind of suggestion was, OK, your words are great, but what are your actions going to show? So they'll have to show that they're supporting workers, but they'll also have to rescue the economy. It's just not an easy scenario. Naomi, can I bring you in there? One of the hopes in Marion Street is that the costs of all this and the Irish government's ability to borrow to fund the costs of this will be uh, assisted by the European Recovery Fund. But that is far from a done deal at this stage. EU leaders supposed to meet next week uh, to discuss it. How near are we to an agreement on that? And what are the what are the barriers to an agreement uh, at this stage? So the situation is that Germany has just taken over the EU presidency, which is significant because it means that Chancellor Angela Merkel is in the chairing position of these debates, um, bringing all of her uh, political heft to it. And also the kind of, um, the, I suppose, moral force of argument that she has as the leader of a country which was uh, previously against um, fiscally liberal policy in Europe, but has said that this crisis is different and that they are changing their policy accordingly, um, which gives them, you know, a good uh, argument to make to the states that oppose this uh, stimulus package, uh, which are, you know, the frugal states led by the Netherlands, who essentially fear that uh, big sums of money uh, in the form of EU programmes will end up being charged to their taxpayers in one way or another, and they're opposed to that. So at the moment, it, it, the Germany is 
Angela Merkel is in Brussels today to try to um, line up agreement next week. Um, and they've made it clear that they want agreement to be done that weekend. Um, so they're meeting, all the EU national leaders are meeting physically on the 17th and 18th um, to d- to discuss this deal. Um, I don't think they're going to get a deal next week. That's my own personal prediction. Now, I could be proved wrong, um, but essentially the urgency for it um, is twofold. It's one that there's the argument that the sooner this comes, uh, the less the economic damage will be. And then the other one is that the sooner we agree it, the sooner we can go on holidays. Um, so the sort of Brussels bubble can go on holidays and the national leaders can take some time off. Um, I think that the second one is already priced in. Everybody knew that. Or Sorry, the first one, the economic situation is already priced in and everybody already knew that. And the second one, the argument ho- about holidays just isn't enough to overcome the ideological opposition of the frugal states and particularly their domestic situation. The Netherlands is just, I mean, the public in the Netherlands is not supportive of this deal and it would just be really difficult for a government to get it past parliament, which it may have to do um, if some elements of the deal need national ratification if they go ahead. Um, and that just looks extremely difficult. So, I, th- I mean, I think... I think there will be a deal, um, but my bet would be that it's not going to be next week. But I could be wrong. And what are the consequences, uh, I wonder, Cliff, if there isn't a deal next week, if the summit breaks up without agreement, if Angela Merkel brings the full political, diplomatic, economic and moral weight of Germany's presence behind a push for a deal and a and it doesn't happen. What are the implications for that, for governments, for the markets? Yeah, I, I think, as Naomi said, there, there, there may be a bit of time on this one. I think you're right. There'd be an important signal sent from next week's summit. Is this, is this on track or has this gone badly off track? Even if there isn't a deal next week, are we on course for a deal later in the summer? Some kind of agreement. And I think at this stage, you would bet that it'll be hard to reach an agreement, that, but that one Something would probably be put together, given the uh, given the political force behind it, given, as Naomi said, Germany's presidency. So there may be a bit of a political schmazzle, all right. But the key thing for the markets is that the ECB is still is still there. That's the really crucial thing in terms of the price at which countries are borrowing, including Ireland. And given that everyone is spending a, a bag load of money at the moment, the price of borrowing is the is the key thing for everybody. Um, so the ECB will stay in the market. Um, I don't think there'll be an immediate uh, market crisis, but but you're right. What happens politically does does have a it, in the longer term or looking into next year, it does have a an economic consequence because the markets will be looking at Europe. They they'll be looking at whether a deal can be put together, uh, and particularly a deal that can help the southern European countries, notably notably Italy. Uh, and if it all falls apart, you could see you know pressure on Italian bond yields increasing, the ECB forced to step in and spend yet more money, and you know you you, you could end up in a situation later in this year where where things get where things do get a bit more uh, fraught. So in the immediate term, the ECB I think will keep things together, but heading out into next year, it is important that political deal is done, both because of the money involved, but also because of the signal it sends. Naomi, the ECB is often criticised as being an undemocratic institution. But I suppose in the circumstances that 
Cliff outlines not having to secure democratic backing for the decisions you may have to take, such as intervening in the markets, can actually be quite useful, I suppose. Well, yeah, I think that the ECB has stepped into the gap um, where agreement has failed. The reason why the EU is relying so much on the ECB right now is because um, they, you know, have not already agreed a deal. And that means that the ECB has has had to step in, um, you know, to keep bidding down the price um, uh, that countries like Italy are paying to borrow, as Cliff says. Um, I think something that really interesting to see in the forecast that came out from the Commission this week uh, was the difference in economic impact between different countries. So Ireland is more or less on the EU average with 8.5% forecast um, downturn this year. Um, compared to the EU average of 8.3. And then, of course, as you mentioned, the hardest hit are countries like Italy, France, Spain, also Croatia, uh, which is because of its reliance on tourism. Um, The reasons why different countries are hit in different ways, though, are rather complex. So it can be to do with tourism. It can also be to do with how many small businesses you have, how many businesses are are client-facing or depend on like interpersonal interactions, how much of your economy is based up on that. Um, And you can see that because some economies have a relatively light hit, like Poland, which is only 4.3%. That's the the lightest hit in the EU. Um, And also something which I thought was really interesting was that Sweden and Denmark are the second and third lightest hit in the EU. Um, And I think that kind of exposes that the idea that there was a trade-off between economic growth and lives, which... Uh, the lockdown debate was sort of premised on this assumption that you could decide to destroy the economy but save lives or, you know, you could keep the economy going and and uh, and, and people would die. But that's not actually the case because Sweden, of course, didn't have a lockdown and Denmark did. But the impact on their economy is very similar. It's quite light in both cases. And that's probably to do with the economic makeup of their economies more than anything else. Moving on, tomorrow is the day, of course, when Pascal Donoghue will find out if uh, he's going to become chair of the uh, of the Eurogroup or president of the Eurogroup, as uh, as I think is rather grandiosely titled. Just briefly, Naomi, could you just outline to us what the position is and uh, and and how the horse race is lining up? Sure. So there's three people who are candidates. It's an anonymous vote, and to win, one of the candidates needs to get. 10 votes out of 19. So each of the finance ministers of um, of the Eurozone area will get a vote here. Um, so Pascal Donoghue's rivals are um, the Spanish finance minister, Nadia Calvino, who's a former EU bureaucrat. So she worked within the EU institutions. She's an economist and she now works in the um, uh, Spanish government. And uh, Pierre Gramenga, who's the Luxembourg finance minister and a former diplomat. Um, so the way it's working out is that Nadia Calvino has the support of the Mediterranean countries, broadly speaking. Uh, she's, you know, from a socialist background. She's an integrationalist and um, she comes from that sort of uh, background ideologically. Um, Pascal Donoghue has put himself forward as a compromise candidate, someone who can build bridges and unite the North and South because Ireland is it's sort of in sometimes in the northern group but you know we got a bailout so we're not exactly among you know the the germany's and netherlands of the world um but actually the luxembourg candidate pierre gromenga has made his pitch almost the same so he's also 
pitching himself as the compromise bridge candidate. Um, so it's an it's a secret ballot, so we don't really know um, how it will break down. Uh, but in Nadia Calvino's favour is that she's a woman. She would be the first um, woman leader of the Eurogroup. She's actually the only woman in the Eurogroup. And she's also been backed by Chancellor Angela Merkel, uh, which, you know, has a certain amount of force. How heavily is Merkel backing her, do you think? That's a good question. It's very difficult to know how much lobbying is going on behind the scenes in favour. It could be a tokenistic support and, you know, Germany isn't going to seek to change anybody else's mind on it. Um, so uh, Pascal Donoghue has been is the official candidate for the biggest European grouping in the EU, the EPP. European People's Party. So, you know, that could give him the numbers. Um, but it's very difficult to know how it will break down on the day. And, the, you know, this little deal making can take place like, you know, Gramenga and Donoghue could team up to try and squeeze out Calvino and, you know, this kind of thing. Um, it could go to two rounds of voting if there's no one clear winner in the first round. That's if nobody gets to 10 votes on the first round, then the lowest ranked candidate is eliminated, I guess. And Correct. Yeah. Okay. So it would be important for Pascal Donoghue clearly that he's got to stay ahead. He can't. He can't be last in the first round, or he's good. He can't be right? last. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now he's, you know, he his reputation is that he's popular. He's well liked in the Eurogroup, and um, he, and certainly in the, initially there was a lot of supporters for him who were kind of trying to find out whether he was running or not because it was very awkward. The deadline for his candidacy was just before the government was actually officially formed. So that was really awkward timing because he didn't, he couldn't really officially say whether he'd be finance minister or not. Um, so there were, in that moment, there were a lot of other countries that were trying to establish whether he was going to be a candidate or not. And that, that reflects the fact that they wanted to support him as a candidate. So he does have support, uh, but nothing's for certain. Jennifer, how significant domestically would it be for Pascal? Uh, a lot? Not at all? Something in between? I think, I think something in between. His first task, obviously, will be kind of charting our recovery as, you know, as a country through the coronavirus pandemic and along with Michael McGrath, obviously. And and I suppose this role, it, it's, it seems to me to be quite a big role. You know, there's a, there's a couple of, there's the main issues that we'd know about, but there also seems to be kind of some, maybe some trickier issues in there, um, such as taxation, which is an area that, the Irish government obviously is quite sensitive on and he might be required to be, I suppose, an honest broker in a sense between issues that may arise in the EU in relation to digital taxation policy and then our own uh, taxation policy. So it could, it could prove quite tricky for him um, from time to time. I think it will be great for him, reputationally speaking, and I think coming after our success with the uh, Security Council, it probably will be a good endorsement of his credentials, which is no harm to have uh, in your finance minister. Cliff? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's an odd job, really, uh, in the sense that it's kind of chairing a, a committee on the one hand, but it is a very powerful committee, uh, Europe's finance ministers. Not much happens in Europe without the finance minister signing off on it. Uh, and we've seen before how previous, minister, uh, previous uh, presidents of the Eurogroup were involved at a high level in two reports in 2012 and 2015 on the future of the euro area. They were co-signatories along with the president, uh, uh, the commission president, uh, the Eurogroup president and so on. So, it, it is a job in which you can nudge yourself into the into the centre of decision making, and and of of course there are huge issues now. What's going to happen with the recovery fund? Uh, is Europe going to borrow on its own account? Uh, is money going to be given out as grants? Um, grants or loans or both are 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 in what way? So there's a lot on the table as well as the tax agenda that Jennifer mentioned. So it could be a really influential job and a really important time to be in it. 
And I suppose interesting as well to see, uh, you know, if, if it, there'll be a huge demand of time and um, there's a lot to be done at home as well. So if he gets it, he's going to be busy. OK, well, we'll, uh, we'll keep our eyes peeled in Brussels tomorrow. Naomi, we expect you to be first with the news uh, as ever from the capital of Europe. So listen, that's all for this edition of Inside Politics. My thanks to our guests today, Jennifer Brake, of Taylor, Naomi O'Leary, uh, Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan produced the show with JJ Fernan on sound. Goodbye and thanks for listening.